much appreciated. Um, yeah, I, I just I guess that's where I wanted to start actually. Um, I know Matt the other week shared a little bit about what sabbaticals are, why we have them, the purpose of them. I'm not going to say anything about that, but I guess mainly just I really appreciate the release uh, to have an extended period of pause for rest, reflection, refocus, and not just the release from Tom and Matt and the, the staff team, but also the release from, from you guys. Uh, I'm definitely going to miss you. Uh, do say hello to me if you see me in the shops. You don't just have to blank me or anything like that. Uh, I might blank you. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, well, today um, we are opening a new series looking at resilient disciples. What does it mean to be a resilient disciple? I don't know whether you would say you're a resilient person or not. You can define resilience in a few ways. Oxford Dictionary defines it like this. It says it's the ability to recover after shock, injury, or trial. Patrick Regan, um, who's an author and actually a friend of mine, I got to go on a trip with him to Iraq just a few years ago, and he's uh, a bit of an expert in the whole area of mental health. He's wrote a book on resilience, perseverance, and hope. Uh, and he's, he defines it in this way. He says it's the ability to thrive in the midst of adversity. Um, I don't know what images kind of conjure to mind, what comes to mind when you think about the word resilience, whether it is a, a tree like this, something that's standing tall. The tree, is, can you see some trees? Oh, it was a camel, ah, gotcha, gotcha. They're too quick, these visuals team, too quick. But yeah, these, these trees, I, I believe they're called redwood trees, uh, and they are, they've stood the test of time. They're like super old. They've weathered every season and they're still standing. Whether that's a bit of a picture of resilience that you would like for your life. Whether it's of a boxer, some of us who are a bit more into our sport, somebody who's able to roll with the punches, get to the end of the round without throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done. There are many different images. And I think, uh, I really do believe that people are very, very resilient. Um, you've probably got people who come to mind, people you can think of who are keeping going despite very good reasons just to give in, very good reasons to give in, but they still keep going. We see this as we look at history, but we also see it, I see it just in the day-to-day. -day. Last Friday, I was at the funeral of one of my best friends who I grew up with, and he died of, of cancer, and I, I sat there and I watched his wife Sarah, walk up to the lectern, share her heart in front of many friends and family about the husband that she once loved, still loves, but misses her very dearly. There was moments where, as she shared, she gripped the lectern in front of her, summoning the strength just to stay standing straight, to continue to say, to finish what she had come up there to say before she sat back down. She now continues to wake up day to day, raising two children, alone, yes, with support, but putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other every day, doing the things she knows that she has to do for those children and for her family. People are incredibly resilient. Well, they are until they're not, right? They are until they're not. Because the other side of the coin is that we all know people who have, at different points, for different reasons, given up, thrown in the towel, thought, I just can't do this anymore. They've rallied, 
and they've rallied and they've rallied and they've reached a breaking point. And they've reached a breaking point and have gone, I'm done. People do have breakdowns. People do throw in the towel. What is going on here? What is this kind of paradox? What's going on? Well, let me go back to my camel, not my tree, but my camel. Camels are incredibly resilient. They're known as ships of the desert. Their strength and their stamina is truly amazing. They are able to carry very heavy loads across like acres of burning sands. They go for weeks without water when their human counterparts die of thirst. But they do have an Achilles heel. The treacherous thing about camels is though they walk 1,000 miles with seemingly endless endurance, actually all of a sudden they collapse and die in an instance without giving you any warning. Horses are far more, you might say, self-aware. Horses tire <laughs> bit by bit. You know what you can ask of a horse. Does anyone ride horses in this room? Want to identify yourself? Go on. Katie, is this true? Yeah, you know exactly what you can ask of a horse. Whereas camels, without indication, it's just too late. It's just over. No indication. So it's really important for us to, as we explore and go on a bit of a journey through this whole series, make sure we don't get to that point. Like, what are the warning lights on the dashboard and what can we do about it? That's what we're going to be thinking about through this series. You're going to look at, in a few weeks' time, loads of different things. The strength that prevails. You're going to look at the fact that there is a deep well to draw from. You're going to look at daily habits that can lead to life. All of these are different pathways to a resilient life. They're all different facets for building godly resilience. But today, my job is mainly to try and outline the problem that we face. I want to try and help you understand the cultural moment that we live at and what are some of the things that erode our resilience. What are some of those things that erode our resilience in the moment that we are living in right now. Jesus rebukes the crowds in Luke 12, and he says this. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? What's he saying? He's saying pay attention. You pay attention to the weather, but you don't pay attention to the times that you're living in. It's so important because if we don't pay attention to the time that we are living in, then we won't know our vulnerabilities and we won't know how to safeguard against them. So what are some of the things that are going to erode your resilience? We're going to spend the rest of our time answering that question. Number one, I think it can be a wrong understanding of what resilience actually is in the first place. It might seem a basic place to start, but I think it's important. I've had lots of conversations with people in the past say, I'm not resilient, or, or that person, like, super resilient. Like, resilience isn't like a have or a have-not thing. It's more like a muscle that can grow. So it's not some have, some don't. We all have, and we all have the ability to grow it. And the way muscles grow is through hard work. They then break down. They have lots of small tears in the hard work. They're breaking down, but then they need a period of rest. And in the period of rest, they actually go stronger, and they're ready to go again. That's how muscles break down. 
And it's much like that with us. So whatever your starting point, where, however resilient you feel like you are today with all the challenges that might surround and you might face, I just wanted to say, like, we can all grow in this area. This isn't a message for just half of the room who feel like, yeah, I'm resilient, or the other half who feel like, this is a message for all of us. And mindset is massive in this area. That's why it's so important to get the definition right. Because research suggests that we only strive towards a goal if we believe it's possible and realistic. If we don't believe it's possible and realistic, if it feels out of touch from the very beginning, then you will never get started in the first place. So this is possible. This is realistic. It's not a case of you have it or you don't. It's a muscle that can grow. The second problem that we have in this culture is that we often choose self-protection over strengthening. We choose self-protection over strengthening. And it's, it's natural, I believe, to try and avoid hardship and pursue the path of least resistance. It's almost hardwired into us to do that. And I'm not suggesting here that you should sit here and go, I just want a really hard life so I can be really resilient. But there is a paradox at play. The paradox is that we know that even though we wouldn't choose calamity and hardship, we know that it exists in a fallen world. So we should expect it, not be surprised when trouble comes. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. Famous words. What's he trying to do? He's trying to put resilience into his disciples from the very beginning. He's trying to say, there will be trouble. Lean into it when it comes. Don't just try and escape it. Lean out of it. One place, though, where I see this um, tension at play is in parenting. I see it so clearly as an early parent, our first daughter, Robin, when she was born, I just remember like running around the house, making every edge soft, like baby-proofing to the max. Our house was more like a soft play center. It was like you could bounce off anything. It would be fine. I remember you've got the, um, the health visit to come around. It's like no hard edges here, nothing to worry about. Everything is totally fine. We went like to much, like great lengths to make sure that this house was safe, like no risks at all, no risks here. Do you know, uh, New York, there was a piece of research that was also done in New York that said that play parks have actually, in some areas of New York, become too safe. Just think about that for a moment. Depending on the generation that you grew up in, you might, that might ring bells with you, but play parks have become too safe. What happened was they tore down jungle gyms like this, stuff where you could climb super high, stuff that looked adventurous, stuff that looked like, yeah, I want to have a go at that. Lots of hard edges, this is a concrete floor, metal bars. And they tore them down, and they replaced them with all of these parks that have like nice bouncy floors, like rubber like this, and you, know, you can bounce into anything, and, and there's not going to be a problem at all. And what they realized was it lessened children's sense of adventure, and it lessened their ability to process risk. So what happened was, instead of seeing a piece of equipment like that and thinking, that looks challenging, you know, I want to try and accomplish that, it looked boring and it now looks too small. So what they do is, they, they weren't playing on the park, they were going to the tram lines and to the bridges and they were taking on challenges that actually looked interesting. <laughs> like, can you blame them? But what happened was, essentially, they went to more dangerous places to play. It had the opposite effect. And for young, that was older children, for younger children what they found was, that actually, 
injuries in hospitals increased. So parks got safer, but injuries in hospitals increased because they would leave the soft edges of these super safe parks. They would go out into the real world, other you know, places to play. And all of a sudden, they hadn't built up the confidence to deal with the challenges, physical challenges. And they would think things were safer than they actually were because they'd been brought into this false sense of self-security that, you know, I can't help myself in this environment. Like an interesting piece of research, especially when you apply it to ourselves. And I just think, as you think, oh, this is the last thing that I'll say, sorry, uh, good quote. It says, a child who's experienced a fall before the age of nine is less likely to develop a fear of heights as a teenager. So where we would often think that would be the other way around, they actually said they're less likely to develop a fear of heights as a teenager. What's true for building physical confidence and resilience, I believe is also true for emotional resilience, it seems. As I said before with children, it's so tempting to run around after them, trying to smooth every path, make sure they don't have any relational conflicts, you know, try and make sure they don't experience any disappointments. Apparently it's called helicopter parenting. You know, the moment that they face a challenge, you swoop in, you jet down on your rope, and it's like, right, sort this out for you, there you go. You know, it's just take, take every edge off every experience in life. But what's interesting is, and what you come to realize, is that, and this principle is at play, just as it is with play, it's at, it's at play in the spiritual aspects of our lives too, is that when you take away all risk, you actually take away exploration, learning, and growth. You take away those opportunities, and they're so important. So for a child who has never learns what it is to process disappointment in a healthy way, what, what are they going to be set up for as they become an adult and have to process many disappointments in the world? And it's the same for us. You know, God won't necessarily smooth every path, but some, sometimes he will, sometimes he will, but not always. But instead, he promises to be with us, and he says, trust me, trust me as you lean into this moment, and I'm with you, that this is a, a moment for growth and strengthening. And I believe that's how Paul can say something which sounds so crazy as, you know, Romans 5 says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He's saying it's not meaningless. Lean into these things. God is doing something in the midst of it. And please don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to belittle suffering in any way. If you know my story, I wouldn't do that. I'm not trying to belittle suffering, but I am saying that as we encounter difficult moments rather than trying to run from them at every turn it's trusting God in the midst of them trusting that though we wouldn't have chosen them he can produce something of value in us through them I think that's super important number three we tend to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have our culture is brilliant at doing this. We live in a society that in subtle and unsubtle ways whispers, sometimes shouts, you don't have enough, you need more. You need a bigger house, you need a better car, you need a promotion, you need longer holidays, more gadgets, nicer clothes, you need a better social life. The list goes on and on. You don't have enough. And I think this creeps into how we feel about our lives and the challenges that we face. I think it erodes emotional resilience. There was a study that was done by the neuro, uh, sorry, uh, that was entitled The Neuroscience of Gratitude and the Effects on the Brain. And it found that practicing gratitude and thankfulness 
builds emotional resilience by helping you see that the most important things in life you often already have. The most important things in life you often already have. Um, I remember really clearly in assembly, I was probably like 12 or 13 years old, and this teacher had the job of, I guess, drumming into this large year group uh, of 12-year-olds the value of you know, experiences in life over possessions, over, material, over wanting those next pair of trainers or the next bag or whatever it was. He had a tough job. Uh, but what he said, I just remember, and it, it was... I think it was profound. He just said it was very simple, but I remember him saying, if I offered you a million pounds, would you take it? Said it's our whole year group. And obviously everyone nods, and a few people audibly said yes and shouted out, yes, I'd take it. And then he said, what, and what would you say? And someone said, thank you. <laughs> like, very timidly, like the yes was really loud, the thank you was really quiet. And I said, thank you. He said, oh, but the only catch is you don't get to wake up tomorrow. The only catch is you don't get to wake up tomorrow. Would you still take it? He said. And we all like reticently went, no, I don't, no, 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 because we're like, that would be stupid. And then he said this. So what that tells you is waking up tomorrow is more important than having a million pounds. So wake, let that shape the gratitude with which you carry into every day. And we sat there like, huh? He's just duped us. We've just been tricked. Like, how can that be true? But we answered honestly. We answered honestly. So what does that tell you? It told me in the moment, and as I've reflected on it, that half the time we don't even know what we really want, let alone what we need. Let alone what we need. The good news is that God knows what we need, and we have an abundance of it in him. In the New Testament, the second letter that Peter writes to a church that needs much resilience facing persecution for their faith. He says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Everything we need. The same power has been given to us, Mosaic Church. We just need to come to him, we need to draw from him and receive his power. The fourth problem that we can face in our culture today is that we tend to choose quick worldly comforts over deeper satisfaction in God. We tend to choose quick comfort over deep lasting satisfaction that God offers. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament whose job it was to call a whole group of people back to God and back to his way of life. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 2, 13. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, number one, the spring of living water, And number two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This imagery was potent for its hearers, and it is slightly lost on us because we have taps around uh, most of the time. We have access to clean water. It's super easy. But just to help you, I just want to just recall just for a moment just the thirstiest you have ever been. Can you just do that for me? Thirstiest you've ever been. I don't know, maybe waking up in the morning when you haven't drank enough in an evening. Maybe you've had a curry, lots of salt, and you're just like, wake up and you're like, oh, give me a drink of water. Maybe it's playing as a child outside before parents seem to give you bottles of water to go play with. You played in the sun, six weeks holidays, you've got a banging headache, you come back and you're like, water, please. I don't know, what's the thirstiest you've ever been? Just recall it for a moment. 
Living in the Middle East, there were two ways that you could get water. You had the hard work of digging a cistern like this. This would fill with rainwater, which would soon become stagnant and dirty, and then it would dry up. All the water would be absorbed. All it would need is a few cracks in the rock. All of a sudden, it would be empty. What would be left would be this scummy water that you would not want to touch. Or you have these fresh water springs. And if you found them, it's so valuable, there weren't many around. These fresh water springs. I know where I would be choosing to drink from. You know, just with a level head, I know where I'd be choosing to drink from. The problem is that we often feel like we know best. And in feeling we know best, we forsake the spring of life in just the craziest ways. And we go to what looks more satisfying in a moment. And it's not always that these things we go to for comfort are even sinful. You know, Netflix, social media, sports, gaming, like binging good food. You know, it, it's not that these things are in and of themselves necessarily sinful. It's just that they often don't have the substance and the resources to satisfy us over the long haul. Like, they're pretty empty. They don't fuel us for the challenges that we face in life. And I don't know why. But this, there's often a dynamic at play that the very thing we need most is just sometimes the easiest thing to put off. It's the very thing you need most. It's the easiest thing just to put off, even though you know you need it. The amount of times that, just being honest, the amount of times that I go downstairs, we've got a blue chair, I put, the kids are having breakfast, I put the cereal on the table, I sit in the blue chair, I think, right, I'm going to read my Bible. I think, actually, just first, I'm just going to put this eye mask down. Yes, that's true, I wear an eye mask. Put this, I'm just going to have five more minutes, because five more minutes of sleep in that moment just feels like the right decision. And five minutes turns into 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then someone's pulling my arm saying, we need to go to school. And it's like, the five minutes is the quick comfort that I'm choosing. Other times, I maybe don't go to sleep, but I get my phone out to read on the Bible app. And 10 minutes later, I'm still on Instagram. Why am I still on Instagram? Well, it was just there. It was ready. It was like a quick comfort. My plan was always to go Bible first, but I went Instagram first, then Bible. And there you go. The time's going. I actually caught myself the other morning. I actually said audibly, <laughs> audibly, I was like, what are you doing? Robin looks up from her breakfast and goes, I'm eating my breakfast. <laughs> And I said, sorry, I was talking to myself, genuinely. I thought I was talking to myself. And I was talking, you might think that sounds really weird. What am I trying to do in that moment? I'm trying to steer myself. John Eldred, who writes his book, Resilience, he talks about you need to shepherd your longings. You need to shepherd them. And sometimes a shepherd has to use a stick. I'm shouting at myself. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I'm trying to call myself back to something in a time that's so, when nobody else is there to do it. This is particularly important. You're going to explore this more, I think, in week five, where it looks at habits that lead to life. But to be passive is, to, is where you see where your thirst will take you. Okay? To be passive is to see where your thirst will take you. To be active is to take your thirst somewhere. So see where your thirst will take you, or you can take your thirst somewhere and be active. Our longings and desires don't make good decisions on their own. That's one thing that I've learned. Left to their own devices, they will go to the quickest route for comfort. They don't also have a moral compass. They need leading. They need leadership. 
John Eldred writes uh, in his book about the post-pandemic reality, he's called Resilience, he says this, we've all run off to find life and joy following a couple of years of stress, trauma and isolation, but it isn't working. It won't ever work. We must shepherd, lovingly shepherd our famished thirst back to the source of life. And I guess that's where I'd like us to finish this morning because you're going to have five weeks looking at this and it might feel like I've outlined all the problems more than anything. But I do think that knowing where you are vulnerable and knowing where you are potentially um, weak is the first step towards growing in this area. But the reality is that we have a source of life here this morning that we can come to. A spring that doesn't run dry, and that has to be the first step. So would you stand with me? I want to invite the band back. I want to pray for us as we go on this journey. Father God, I thank you that you hold all the resources that we need for the, to endure the challenges of life. And I thank you that you are a generous God who doesn't hold them back. But Lord, you promised to lavish them on us. Ephesians 3 verse 6 says, For his, From his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Let me just read that again. Just receive that even in this moment. From his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. You know, godly resilience starts with confidence that God has all you need. It's the confidence and the faith that God has all you need. That he has the strength to sustain you. So we come now to the one who holds us and the one who invites us to draw strength from him. Father, would you lovingly shepherd us back to yourself. Lead us away from quick comforts, Lord, to you, the one who promises to restore. Lord, we in this moment choose to turn from broken cistern, poisoned wells, false promises of the culture, and back to the wellspring of life. Your very self, Lord Jesus, in your name.